0: Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. In today's Silicon Valley, where more than 75% of venture capitalists are male, it's still very much a boys' club. I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television. In this episode, we meet with a panel of female CEOs to discuss how to empower more women to start businesses, and once they do, how they can scale them to entrepreneurial success. I want to welcome each of our guests, and I want you guys to to go back in time and share with us your 30-second elevator pitch of your business. The original. The, well, okay, you can <laughs> you can alter it for the changes that have been uh, th- that have taken place since then. But uh, why don't we start with you, Katya?
1: Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Katya. Um, Birchbox is about six and a half years old. And when we launched Birchbox, we had an insight around making beauty discovery and shopping better. And we recognized that there was real potential to bring beauty shopping online. It's still less than less than 6% online today. So that was the initial insight. But today, we're very focused on something that we think is an even bigger mission, which is delivering beauty to the majority of women who are not obsessed with beauty. And that's what I think about all the time. So I'm obsessed with building a beauty company for women who are not obsessed with beauty. And so
2: we do. Nadia? Awesome. So I'm Nadia. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Dia & Co. Uh, we are, I guess, two and a half years old at this point, And Dia was founded really on the belief that women of all sizes wanted to participate in fashion. So we serve exclusively women sizes 14 and above, uh, which in the US today makes up about 67% of the population. The average size in the US in between is between 16 and 18. Uh, but that same group of women in the US spends about 17% of apparel dollars. And that was the fundamental equation that we built our business to fix. So today we operate as a personalized um, online shopping service for women and I would imagine that continues to evolve as we kind of remain in pursuit of extraordinary service for our customer. Britt.
3: Hi everyone, I'm Britt, and um, when I was five years old I thought I was a creative person. I played with Legos and blocks and colored a lot, and then um, I realized 20 years later at the age of 25 that I suddenly started telling people I wasn't that creative, and all of my girlfriends um, started saying the same thing. And my light bulb moment for Brit Co was um, wondering what happened during that delta period of time. Why do we as adult women suddenly feel like we aren't creative people anymore? Um, and there are a lot of things that went into that, but ultimately That's I founded cool. Brit Co um, as, a, as a means to empower women to be more creative. And today we are a media company that reaches over 100 million people a month. We have an online learning platform where women can take courses to be more creative. And we have products and merchandise as well that supports that vision.
0: All right, so let's start with the universal challenge that uh, something men and women struggle with alike, which is fundraising. Is it more difficult for women? Nadia, what do you think?
2: Uh, I think it is. I think it's hell I yeah. Mean, <laughs> it's, hell it's, yes. it's, it's hard. It's hard to look at the numbers any way in the world and not come to the conclusion that the cards are stacked against female founders. Um, I believe the stat is currently that 93 percent of VCs are men, um, and I think, you know, it would be uh, irrational to assume that that is a bias that doesn't impact decision making. Uh, probably for the case of all three of us, we're also building businesses for women. So not only is it a a problem in interacting somebody kind of at the founder level with a venture capitalist, but actually getting them to understand why the product that you're bringing to market serves such a profound need for a customer that is very foreign to them is, I would say, a secondary hurdle um, that makes it very challenging to raise money as a female founder.
1: Yeah, it's like a double dink. Yeah, for sure, to have a,
3: to be a woman and
1: also build a business for a female consumer. It's
3: but it's really awesome when they say that they're going to ask their wives or their daughters what they. Think. I've had I've had
1: many administrative assistants come into the room. I've had wives called in meetings, um, and look, that's a logical way of you know kind of learning a little bit more. But you know, when one thing that was staggering to me was that the fundamental numbers. About the beauty industry, the beauty industry is the fastest-growing mature industry that exists. It's five hundred billion dollars today, and less than in two thousand and ten, less than five percent of it was sold on the internet. I mean, at a fundamental level, somebody was going to win, that, right? And and of course, I think it's more logical that as a female consumer, we could relate more to the reason why it wasn't happening. You know, I think that we could put the put the pieces together and say. Consumers want something that's at the intersection of efficacy, like deliver me the right product, and delight. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a truth, I think, for all consumers, not just female consumers. But I think we could really understand what that would look like in a different way. And it was extremely hard to paint that picture if you're a first mover in a category.
0: So, Brit do you then go out and target female investors? I mean, is there a pushback from female investors who say, hey, you're only coming to me because I'm a woman, and you expect me to to sign on because I'm a woman.
3: No, I think the female investors is actually like generally really supportive and empowered, empowering towards female entrepreneurs. They're just. So few of them, to your point. Mm. Um, and a lot of them are actually earlier stage, and I found a lot of them to be earlier stage investors too. So as you're raising growth capital, it's, it is much, even probably a bigger percentage male. But I do think that's the only way to really change the equation of, of empowering more females to become entrepreneurs is to have more females as investors um, who can support you know, that that roadmap for us.
0: And of course, a lot of our audience members are at school, at business school. They might be at Cornell Tech. They might be at Columbia. They might be in the community. So you want to leverage your existing networks as well. Uh, For Katya and Nadia, it's Harvard Business School. Britt, uh, you worked at Apple. You worked at Google. Your husband is in the same industry. So you have a pretty wide circle of acquaintances. My question, though, is what if you lack those credentials? What if you don't belong to any one of those tribes? How do you go about finding and nurturing this network?
2: Uh, One piece of advice that we got at the beginning was that it's very hard to pitch a business kind of in the concept phase as a woman, but what everyone understands is traction. And so one of our first goals was to do whatever we could to prove that they didn't have to believe us. The proof was in the pudding, and we did that. And I think that that's something that truly investors at the end of the day, if you can get beyond uh, belief and into rational Mm decision-making, They they will make the rational decisions in the end. It just I think the initial hurdle is is higher, and traction was our our hack to getting there.
1: Yeah, I think in the early days, um, you know, there's a lot that can hold you back from starting a company if that's your ambition, and a lot of times you can make excuses whether it's you know you can't bring your full idea to fruition because you're not a, somebody that's a technologist, or whether you don't have connections in you know the investor community so you can't launch. But I totally agree. I think. The barriers to entry to launching a business are lower than ever. It's actually pretty inexpensive to get a minimum viable product out there. Um, and traction speaks absolute volumes. For us, you know, my co-founder and I, neither of us were in technology, neither of us were in beauty. And I cold emailed every CEO of the beauty industry that you can imagine. Started my cold emailing hobby with Steve Jobs. that got back to me right before I went to business school, really? and it worked. It worked. Um, the you know my recipe for cold emailing is as follows: very compelling subject line, <laughs> an email that you can read without scrolling on an, a device, right, a smartphone, and um, no business plan attached. So we had like a one pager attached to dive in more, and then you ask for something that's pretty hard to say no to, which in our case wasn't. Will you participate in Birchbox and give us free samples? It was. Can you have five minutes to give me advice? And then that turned into a meeting, and then the meeting turned into a pitch, and then the pitch got us working with Keels and Benefit and you know massive brands early on, which helped build our brand and our credibility. Um, amongst, you know, and frankly, like investors, we were able to meet with investors, we were lucky because we were at Harvard, but they were so skeptical, skeptical their feedback was this is just not going to work initially. You know, no one's gonna pay for sampling. That's a, that's a behavior that doesn't exist.
3: Yeah, it's also just hustle, right? Like, I mean, you probably emailed hundred. I don't know. It's shocking how few. But
1: now, I've, I mean, my cold
3: emailing has it
1: like, still persists. I come from <laughs> the big <tech, laughs> my yeah.
3: I, I mean, I came from the tech industry at Google, but in Apple. But like, I didn't know people in the media industry. I didn't know much about this world at all. And it's just a matter of like, like hustle, pure networking, like what you're doing right now, getting out there, meeting as many people as you can. Um, T- cold tweets, I think, are also no. the new cold email. Twitter didn't exist how weird Yeah, about. cold tweeting. <laughs> Donald Trump's bringing it back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, long live Twitter. Um, but, like, find people's, yeah, send them metrics. Send them, like, send them a tweet with, like, a screenshot of your chart, your graph that just goes up into the right hockey stick graph, <laughs> And then they'll pay, <laughs> attention. they'll pay attention to you. And that by the way, you
1: can always manipulate the y-axis to
2: make her. Your-
1: <laughs> y-axis hmm. is a really critical part of your vision.
0: <laughs> I think we need to banner that. Um, I spoke with someone who launched a network of four women entrepreneurs. And one of her frustrations, she told me, was when a woman says she's going to change the world with her business idea, everyone assumed that she was starting or running a nonprofit. Rather than a company that was out to make money, people don't make that assumption when a man says he's going to change the world, but they always assume that she's starting a nonprofit. What, what do you think about that, uh, Nadia? I, I've definitely um, kind of observed that bias before. Yeah.
2: I think you know I think that one of the things that's important in the early meetings is to have audacious goals. Like talk about building a big business. Talk about wanting to create massive wealth. Talk about wanting to change the world not just because you have a mission but because you have a capitalistic view on life and there's change that can happen through capitalism that you are supportive of. And I, you know, I think that we the more that we emphasize that these are things that are important to us as female founders, the more people come to expect them from us. And you know, if anyone thought we were building a nonprofit business, they didn't think it for very long in our meetings. <laughs>
0: so. What yeah, kind of assumptions I did, think do people make that about women and female entrepreneurs that they don't make about men?
3: Well, I think there's two things. To your point, I think women are um, they are more realistic when it comes to what they're going to achieve and how they're going to achieve it. Um, a lot of men carry bigger egos, um, so their you know their three-year plan might look totally insane, but they they sound as if they fully believe it. And women are again going to be a little bit more realistic in that approach. And probably actually hit the numbers that they say. Um, and then on the flip side, I think that um, you know there just haven't been. I mean, this is the sad truth. There haven't been many female entrepreneurs with multi-billion-dollar exits. And like we need more of them. Like we need more women who are successful to like give the industry more confidence that the rest of us are all going to achieve those types of exits as well. And so at, we'll get there. We're getting there. Like there's more and more traction yeah. as we go. But but we we are behind.
1: But I think a huge part of that is what you said earlier which is access to growth capital because you know I think it actually comes back later on. So in the very early days of Birchbox the actual subject line that I sent to the CEOs was that we are going to reinvent the beauty industry forever. So it was like a big audacious, you know, thing. But what I found, actually, that I think is pretty profound is as you build and scale a very massive business, we're in six countries, we have 4 million active customers, Um, you know, this is when your actual audaciousness as a woman, I think, comes more into question than it does for women, I mean, than it does for men. I actually find that as you get more and more bold and further down, there's skepticism about whether you are grounded enough versus, for a man I think it's seen much more as like visionary forever.
0: So there's pushback with your numbers, your projections. I think
1: I think when you're thinking as big as you're thinking, you know, in, in my mind, we represent the majority of women. Why wouldn't I believe that we can build the largest beauty retailer in the world, right? The 80%. That that's a logical conclusion. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's harder and harder to kind of have that audacious, you know, thinking, that visionary thinking later on because they assume I don't know, that you're the consumer, that you're having an emotional reaction, that you really like lipstick or, (laughs) you know, it's and rather you're looking at the market and you're saying, I got so, I mean, I will say this out loud, I got so lucky with timing, right? I mean, the market was ready for my product when it happened and the consumer was waiting for somebody to prioritize them. And I feel like this is arbitrage, right? (laughs) There is somebody will be an alternative to Sephora and why wouldn't it be us? Um, But again, when you're talking about creating multi-billions of dollars of value, all of a sudden there's like skepticism. And I actually think for men with a proven track record, and I will say I think I have a proven track record, that skepticism isn't as present. Nadia, I see you nodding a lot.
2: Well, I mean, I think our businesses are very similar in that the numbers speak for themselves. We are also serving the majority of women. Uh, that the majority of retailers ignore, and so for us to be able to say that we see eighty billion dollars of value being created in plus size apparel in the next ten years, should not be really a statement that anyone questions. That's just the way the math works. Um, and you know, in some ways, I think maybe we go after problems that are more obvious because who could argue with that? It's sixty-seven <laughs> percent mm-hmm. of the population. She's <laughs> not less interested in style. I promise you. <laughs> and you know, it's. From I, I think it's just a matter of saying we're not trying to build a small business, right? We're going after a big market because we're trying to build a, a business of enduring scale.
1: And frankly, on the contrary, I think to what Britt said, we are, I mean, for those of us who've had the privilege of having success, I think we're very motivated to have massive outcomes so that we can continue to support other women, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that is, if not the m- biggest motivation, it is up there.
3: Yeah, I think like, we, uh, every female <laughs> panel or you know other women entrepreneurs I've met, like. All care deeply about supporting the next class, and there's almost this like inner. Like, do you guys agree? There's kind of yeah. this like it's inner club too. of like female entrepreneurs that support other female entrepreneurs, and even like the like Gen X and beyond, like female CEOs and investors. Like there's, it's a known thing, and everyone's supporting one another, and and I think that it's only uh, hopefully gonna get better.
0: So there's this idea that perhaps uh, one way to make sure that women get just as many opportunities as men when you are raising funds is to perhaps obscure, hide, or diminish your gender during that fundraising effort. Britt, I know that you've written about this and thought about this a lot. There is this proposal that women perhaps use their initials only when submitting uh, pitches when fundraising. Why is that a bad idea? <laughs> <laughs> uh, do I, have to? I mean, that's like a rhetorical question. but. Um, yeah. Well, it, some, some guy posed it and he thought it was a perfectly sensible solution.
3: <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, eventually they will see you. Right, eventually they're gonna
3: meet you in person if they're gonna invest in you, so you probably shouldn't lie. Um, or you, like, you have to be yourself. And I, I think that um, try to use it to your advantage. Like, I, I was young. I started the company at 25. Um, I it was my first company. Um, however, I was squarely in the middle of the demographic I was trying to reach, an 18 to 35 year old woman. I understood that psychographic more than any of the investors that were investing in this company. Um, I had a track record of success of the companies I was at prior to starting this. So, like, you can be yourself, you can be authentic and think about the strength of who you are and, what, and your experiences to leverage yourself in those conversations.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd add to that that we're firmly of the belief that you create truly enduring value in a business by actually resonating with a customer. And to the extent that you are uniquely positioned as a CEO to understand and build a product around your customer, I would celebrate that all day. Right? That these are emotional <laughs> products. These are products that you want to be able to build deep connections with your customers with. That's critical. That That's how you know the businesses that have changed the world have succeeded.
1: I also think it's a little bit of the inverse is true right now. I mean, I think the Silicon Valley, Silicon Alley, they're getting a lot of flack for not investing in women. And frankly, frankly, they're looking for females to invest in. So they're taking the meetings. And I would say, you know, we've benefited a lot from the fact that people were looking for women to meet with, to put on a stage, to, you know, those, those kinds of things are happening too. So I don't think it's a bad time to be a woman and to fundraise as a woman um, and to at least get the meetings. Mm-hmm. But you know, it is challenging when you're pitching people who are not going to be your customer.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about business model versus mission. Um, for your businesses, some people might argue, why are you focusing on a content website that targets young women or young moms who want to be crafty? Why not target all people who want to be crafty? Or plus size clothing for women as opposed to plus size, clo- plus size clothing for, for everyone, for children maybe, for adults, for males. Um, there can be an argument made that male entrepreneurs don't seem to limit their market to men, so why are female entrepreneurs limiting their market to women?
3: I, I mean, I think it's the audience that we know the best, and we know that, and because we know them so well, we know of the massive problems that exist in these categories, um, that of the audience that's not being served, and and like I just said, we're the best to serve them with that. So, um, I also think, like in terms of sco- scope. Um, you know, you you have so many resources when you're starting out and you have to pick a narrow segment, Um, so it's like Facebook started just at Harvard and then they expanded to one more campus and one more campus, Um, so I think if you're going to pick the most narrow segment you can think of, um, you should know that audience really well to sort of ensure that you're going to be successful with them.
0: So that's not to say that there won't be crafty men that you'll be targeting soon? Perhaps not. (laughs) (laughs) I see you. (laughs) Nadia, what do you think?
2: I think focus begets success. I think, you know, we don't choose markets at random. We choose markets that are large. We choose markets that are compelling, and then we focus on them. I think that that's actually the most rational way to build a business. Um, I think as you perfect a market, you earn the right to enter other markets. And as long as you're doing it in a way that is authentic to who you are as a brand, so we are and will always be a plus-size brand. (coughs) Should we serve plus-size men one day? Probably. That's certainly not off the table, but, you know, I think, When you're trying to move very fast and you're trying to build a business with scale and with strong relationships with your customers, focus begets success.
0: And one thing I heard from you, Nadia, and in fact from all three of you, is that you don't identify with the business model. You identify with your customer or the community that you serve. my question is, how do you hold firm to that and avoid getting boxed into thinking uh, through a narrow lens of whatever the business model of the day is, whether it's a subscription model, um, an advertising model, whatever is in vogue? How do you avoid that?
1: I think, you know, it's actually like, how can you not? How can you not think about the customer? The world is doing the work for you, right? The, the reality of what a consumer is experiencing and their expectations is changing. So exponentially every single day that if you don't think about your job as staying relevant to your consumer then you've missed the point that is our that is our vision it's to be powerfully relevant through deep respect and we do think that that is a completely different way of thinking about building a consumer product company because it means that you are not loyal to your product you actually have to be somebody who could really question whether your product is going to hold up over time. But you say, I'm going to be loyal to my consumer. Mm. We are going to serve the 80% of women who are not obsessed with beauty. And whatever technology, whatever innovations there are to give her that experience, that is what we'll pursue. Um, but I do think it's really challenging. And you know, you asked a question about bad advice. And I'd say some of the worst advice we got at Birchbox was to lose focus early on. I mean, people pushing us and saying, like. Why don't you do this in every single category like in our first year? You know, why don't you do it in fashion? Why don't you do it in dogs? Why don't you do it in? And mm-hmm. we said we, will, we, we really believe this is massive and multi-billion dollars in and of itself, and we will focus. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was kind of fighting against what people were saying they wanted to see us do, to show our ambition.
0: Well, how do you uh, how comfortable are any of you with releasing a beta version of your business when you know it's not 100% ready I, I know that entrepreneurs always have to just kind of there's a advantage to being the first mover right but what if uh, it's not ready discuss the temptation of waiting until you get something perfect just the way you had planned it
1: is never ready yeah it's never perfect (laughs) if if you if you could have gone seven years ago to when birchbox was a twinkle in our eye i mean i would say that today it is not what we even still then believed it could be it is a hundred percent never ready and i actually think i was talking to somebody who's a product person who's a woman on my team today And she was talking about her first startup that was a failure. She started so young and it's so impressive. And I was saying, well, there was something really freeing about not being somebody that came from technology and product and design that allowed you to just expect that your product was going to be pretty bad to look at. I mean, our first product was so ugly. (laughs) Um, And everything about it was clunky. And it was like, despite itself, it was working. Like The actual insight resonated so much that it almost was a better test, because as we made the user experience from the physical product to the digital product more beautiful, more fluid, more natural, we knew that there would only be upside. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so in some ways it freed us a lot to now try to move a lot faster with launching
2: things before they're really ready. Yeah, I'd say there's no temptation to wait at deal. We experiment all day, every day. We founded our business that way. We never launched as a business. We started with six testers. We've now worked with a million women And there was never, we just kept going. We learned, we iterated, we adjusted and moved forward. And that's the philosophy that we have um, in everything that we do. And absolutely, sometimes you see stuff that we're doing that looks a little wacky. And either you're never going to see it again or you're going to see a much better version soon. (laughs) But, you know, there's no way to know. And I think that one of the things, um, the trouble about both of our businesses is because we're not tied to a product and we're tied to a customer, we're going to want to put stuff in front of her all the time. And really having flexibility around a business model means that you are testing new things. So no temptation at all to wait for perfection idea.
3: Yeah, the difference with Britain Code than these companies is that as a content creator, we're putting out about a hundred pieces of content every day. And um, I learned very early on in my the tech side of my career at Google um, to just Test and iterate as much as possible. Like we used to test 18 different shades of blue for a button um, to see which one performed better in terms of the click conversion. Um, and now with you know hundreds of pieces of content, um, you know daily, we are testing headlines, images, um, you know engagement length. Should we show the full article on a page or truncate it and see read more? Like there are so many tests running. Um, and when you're creating a physical product, which which we do as well, but it's separate. Like. You've got one shot to give it a go, and it takes several months, and there's R&D, and so I feel like it's there are different ways to iterate quickly um, as a media company, and it sucks though because like nothing is ever perfect. Like I can't look at every piece of content we put out every day. Like I have OCD, and I make, <laughs> would freak out that like that sentence wasn't formulated correctly, and I would have ended it with a di- in a different way, and and so I'm sure you do this too on Bloomberg just you know, the way that the content comes together but we get so many chances to do that over and over again that it ultimately gets better
0: over time. And Nadia, you were telling me that one way you incorporate uh, changes, you make course corrections, is you go out and meet your customer. You were on a six-city listening tour where you were talking to your customer, finding out her preferences, her needs. Um, In many cases, they ended up being recruited into your company as well. That can be very emotional.
2: It, It can be. So we are You know, very proud of the fact that we have customers in every county. We have customers in every MSA. We now have customers in nearly 80% of zip codes in the country. These women are different. And actually going out and spending time with her in her context was some of the best things that we could do for different functional leaders of our team to actually understand how the decisions that they're making, who they're impacting, right? Like, who's on the other side of all these decisions? How do we continue to learn who she is? She's obviously changed as we've scaled. Um, and the woman who we meet with in Nashville is completely different from the woman who we meet with in Baton Rouge who is completely different from the woman in Albuquerque, and we need to know all of them. So, you know, I think that's probably one of the best decisions we
0: made was to take the team on the road. When we talk about emotion and the passion that you exude when you're talking about your business and you're speaking with people in the industry, how does that passion and that emotion work against you? Can it work against you as a female entrepreneur, Katya?
1: Well, you know, I think that it's really—I I guess I ascribe to the belief that like net net, it's a positive. Um, but it is extremely challenging to have distance from who you are and what you've built. And I think in some ways it can work against you, like yourself, and not not necessarily against the fundraise or closing a deal, but against how you feel about yourself because it is such a roller coaster. In any given day, you could have like 18 highs mm-hmm. and. 70 lows. It's not like this was a good day, it's never that simple. Right? Um, and so when your so much of your self-worth is wrapped up in the business and you care so much about it, everything feels personal. But at the same time, one of you know, another piece of advice that I heard a lot from men that I just fundamentally disagree with was this idea that you can't bring love into what you do, it's particularly with teens. Men were constantly saying to me, don't tell your team they're a family. Tell them that they're a sports team, right? Like treat them like a sports team, not a family. That was the advice.
0: But you're a gun for hire kind of thing. No, like basically, like you can Mercier? care, you, you can care train. about them, but
1: like ultimately they're replaceable, right? And, okay, like it's not that I necessarily disagree that people like there's people that can do similar jobs, but I just. The way I wanted to go to work was with a lot more heart than that. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to care and love the people. And frankly, I just completely disagreed with what they were afraid of. They're afraid that because I love people that I work with, because I love my team and I'm grateful for them being there at that kind of level, that I can't fire them, which is so wrong because any of us will tell you as much as we love these people who have come to build our vision, the entity and the vision is the first thing you love. Right, so anybody who's challenging that, you can, you can hundred percent be like, I love you. You're fired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, and and I think that's hard for men to understand that we could do that, that we could actually say like, I have that kind of care and love for everything we do, but I'm also a business person, and the thing that I love the most is the actual entity, the entire piece of it. Right, um, so I, I mean, I think it, it does hurt, but I wouldn't trade it. It is. Such a wonderful life.
2: Yeah.
3: yeah, I mean, I put my name in the brand, so there's some passion right there. Um, like, I get the question a lot in investor meetings. Um, honestly, this is a, it's the same question. What happens if you get by, hit by a bus tomorrow? Um, and I don't know why it's always a bus. Like, <laughs> it could be an Uber, it could be like on the subway. Um, <laughs> but anyways. Um, I, I did that uh, because I was so passionate about what I was building, but it also has kept me on track um, in terms of how we expand and grow um, in the media industry. Uh, there are a lot of ways to garner traffic um, that aren't always like the best way, tactical ways to build a brand. And we haven't gone there. Um, we don't you know cover a lot of topics that are taboo we, we stay pretty true to who we are because I think largely in part like, I feel so passionate about this being a, a long-lasting company and I feel so passionate about our mission and our cause that um, I don't want to put my name on the line <laughs> to take us off course. And it's funny because a hundred years ago almost every business was named after a person. We're in the Bloomberg building, um, Disney you might know, Walmart, Porsche, Hershey's, Rockefeller. like. All of these brands were named after people, and it was because these you wanted to know that person, you wanted to believe that it was an authentic vision, um, that you could talk to them if like you you had questions. Even today in small town America, there's like George's auto parts and Jane's nails, and like you know Jane, um, she does your pedicures, and like, and like that's the that's the environment I was trying to create. So in my case, I think passion for the company has has taken me in a totally different direction um, to keep it
0: kind of within these
3: guardrails of ever going too far off course.
0: Now, let's talk a little bit about the current environment. Um, in terms of the mission, the urgency towards building or working towards profitability, it seems to have accelerated over the last couple of years. It's not something that we had seen um, maybe in 2007, 2008, certainly not 2009. But um, <laughs> Nadia, if you could talk a little bit about the current environment, what have you observed I think these are all healthy things. I think there's absolutely more
2: of a focus on businesses that have unit economics that make sense. I don't think that that's something that should be bad. I imagine that most female founders think about their business that way anyways. Um, and we certainly focus on that. We're, you know, we've grown very quickly, but we increased our gross margin by 50% last year. And that's something that is not a sub bullet. It's like a headline of the business that we're building and doesn't come at the expense of growth. Um, I think overall, Many businesses, the environment just kind of got ahead of itself. And the truth is that there were, um, it's not just about growth. At some point, businesses need to earn money. And it's, I think it's a really healthy thing that we're back on focusing on fundamentals.
0: Do you have to be big and scale to be successful? Can you be small and uh, sustainably profitable and, and be considered a success by, by your investors? Not as a venture capital business, I don't think. Mm-hmm. I think venture is about scale. It has
2: to be scale. It has to be. I mean, yeah, every investor wants you to be both enormous and profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just a fine line. I think that you, you, you can be both of those things in the right amount of time, and if you've taken the right steps to get there. But I, I don't think that small scale profitable businesses are in line with the venture capital model. What about you,
0: Cadio? What do you think?
1: I, I mean, I agree. I think if you are going to get venture backed, which is the first question you should ask when if you are considering starting a business, is how to finance it um, and know that venture, venture is looking for you to do something extremely scalable that is multi-billion dollars and very macro. And that's what you're signing up for. Um, the environment has changed pretty dramatically. And I agree. I think it's it's been wonderful for our business um, and also, of course, insanely challenging because One thing that I think you can lose sight of as an entrepreneur, um, as a founder, as somebody who's really involved early stage is you start to get wrapped up and think like the most important thing you do is around serving the customer, around operating, around the strategy and how it's all coming to fruition. Frankly, it's just as important how you finance the business. And it's a strategy as well. And thinking very strategically about how you're gonna approach that and constantly approach them. You're always meeting with people. This is a constant thing. It is never done. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is a core part of what your job is managing investors meeting new investors (laughs) thinking about the markets changing What are the new products that are out there? What are debt vehicles that you can use? What is the right way to really finance your company should be a real question? But I am like interested to see what's going to happen because yes This is an important correction and one that I think is great but I mean the market will continue to go through the ebbs and flows and once there are many e-commerce exits that are about massive scale and you know, really about reaching that faster, and they and they have longer-term success. Right now, there's only one example, and it's Amazon, um, unprofitable business that is really unfocused. Um, but it's you know basically breaks all the rules of what we're all supposed to think about and prioritize. But once there's more examples, I expect that the market will heat up again. But I think it's really critical to control your own destiny and don't let anybody and any advice ever make you. <laughs> shift your mentality that you will be in control of your destiny if you control your unit economics. And you can still pursue growth with that. Britt, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I think, I think, actually think profitability is a, an amazing, it's our number one. It's like on our all of our whiteboards, like profitable. Um, but uh, it's, it's actually really amazing for just the freedom you have to pursue different paths forward. Um, For instance, uh, a lot in the media world, like a lot of potential acquirers won't really want to talk to you unless you're profitable. Um, It hits their bottom line ultimately is if they're a public company. Private equity firms, the same thing. Um, And so I think that that lever is actually a, a massive lever in a business in terms of the way that you want to exit. Um, I at the same time think that like a lot of entrepreneurs um, or want to be entrepreneurs think the only way to do it is to raise venture capital. And it's one of the biggest pieces of feedback I give people is to like really think that through because um, you can build a good business that's solidly profitable in the millions of dollars and have a great lifestyle and don't, you know, you don't have to carry the burden of the stress that we all go through in terms of. Venture capitalists and growth numbers and all of those things. So um, there are pros and cons to both worlds, but if you take, the minute you take venture capital, like you have to be off into the races and and you have to
0: reach that scale. Nadia, are there any new kinds of sources of funding that are out there that's not venture capital? I mean, could you go to collective giving networks and, and stay intimate and stay small?
2: Um, we haven't done any any of those things. I think it probably depends on how much money you're looking to raise. Um, I think debt is probably more of an option than people realize, hmm. um, particularly in the in the venture debt space. Um, but you know, there's also the idea of just building a business that is profitable at, from the beginning, and then you don't need anybody's money. Well, there are. So. The, I
3: mean, like AngelList is really interesting, and now hmm. there's syndicates on AngelList, and people are raising multiple millions of dollars through AngelList syndicates. So. Um, You know, people that are collectively investing their money in certain investors, who are real humans, um, who invest on behalf of them. And and I think that's a viable option, depending on what you want to launch, if it's a hardware product or consumer good. I still think Kickstarter and those types of options are great ways to test the market. Also, just like test sign-up pages to see if there's traction before you even invest in building a company. Like, um, there are some uh, kind of science labs and other types of, of companies We'll test like 50 ideas in any given month and they'll just put web signups for certain ra- radical product ideas or company ideas and see how many people subscribe to the email list to want to know more and then they'll sort of double down on whatever was like had the most traction that month and start to build out a prototype so um and in the, the agile approach like there are a lot of ways you can test how successful your venture might be before you even get it launched
0: so let's talk a little bit about the operation of the business itself. Um, it is said that women are more collaborative in, in how they manage than, than men are. Um, Katya, you went from co-CEO of Vergebox to sole CEO. So that was a huge adjustment and certainly a big challenge. How's your job different now than it was before?
1: Extremely different, but at you know all stages of Vergebox, it was changing all the time. kind of felt like every six months, the job requirements back just looked dramatically different. Um, Today, you know, what's the biggest difference is not having somebody who's kind of an equal partner where I'm really responsible for managing everyone else's development, you know, happiness, the culture, and that's it's not about like a shared responsibility, and it's not about us coming together and saying, okay, you know, here's what I need, here's what you need. It's a lot more of me saying, Okay, I'm really here to remove the obstacles from your personal development, from the company's goals, and then where I go to get my development has to be Elsewhere, right? It has to be the board, a coach, my advisor group that I meet with um, every few months. So it is extremely different. Um, but it's also, you know, a really fun experience to kind of, a lot of people start their companies, and this, these are my own words, but I think it's similar for everybody to meet themselves. That was like a really big reason why I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just wanted to know what I was made of. And it feels like this gift of kind of force meeting these new aspects of your personality even your limitations that you face and then you decide am I going to be the kind of person that overcomes this thing that I don't like about myself or that you know feels very foreign to me or am I going to succumb to it um, it's I feel like I'm getting to know myself so much better in this job than I have prior
0: not yet. Mm-hmm. When we talk about collaboration, you've brought in a lot of your customers mm-hmm. as members of your staff. I mean, you've taken them on, and it's it kind of happened naturally. Can you walk us through how that how that transpired? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think this is one of the places where we wanted to be very specific and tangible in how we remained customer centric, and the way one of the tools that we have is to bring customers into the business. Um, so. We are actually 80% women across the organization. And that's primarily because we want to be as reflective of our customer as possible. Um, It keeps us customer honest at every level of decision making that uh, happens in the organization. And I think is one of the guardrails that we've really put up successfully so that despite the fact that we have grown very quickly, the focus on why we're all here has never been lost.
0: And, Britt, of course, you had a big pivot early on in your business. I mean, you're a firmly media company now, but at one point you actually thought about being a suite of apps mm-hmm. rather than a content provider.
3: Yeah, I, I was um, interested in how you could build a hub of content and use that to convert somebody <coughs> to do something. Um, and that day, in 20, late 2011, early 2012, apps were still all the rage. At this point, you know, obviously. Um, I think most people consume content through a number of of apps um, during the day, not you know hundreds anymore. But that was the that was sort of the premise, is like if you could build an audience um, that were interested in certain topics, you know, we thought about the life stages like weddings and parenting and, and food and things like that. Could you then give them utilitarian apps to help them along those paths of life? So we built like the ultimate wedding website creator where um, I, you know, I was getting married at the time, so I was very into this. Like you could connect all of your guests through a Facebook API. So you could combine people that had similar interests to connect them ahead of time before the wedding and make social seating charts and all these things. I actually used this at my wedding, by the way, and it <laughs> worked really well. We had like a number of hookups that happened, and um, <laughs> my dad and my, my husband's fraternity brother like, both were interested in trucks, and they sat next to each other at the table and like are now BFFs, um, so I'm just saying, uh, early success. But um, what we saw was that a lot of our um, users were just way more engaged with the content and kept like writing to us asking for like more content and more, um, you know, different types of content. And, and so we decided to, again, like keep that focus and double down and we saw the revenue opportunities as a kind of disruptive digital media company and, and decided to go that route. But yeah, it's like always listen to the data um, and, and, you know, focus on what your audience is telling you they want more of.
0: All right, let's stay with collaboration, but we're talking about collaboration between work and life because I know you're a working mom, you're a working mom, Katya. Britt, you were in your late pregnancy, late in your pregnancy when you were going around raising money for your business.
3: That, uh, so I was, there's no
0: way to hide the fact that you're going to be taking leave at some point. <laughs>
3: um, actually, I yeah, I was I was I needed to raise uh, w- during my last trimester. I have two kids of the first kid, um, and to be honest, uh, some of my board members and advisors suggested that we bridge the company um, a couple months to get through that period so that I could have the baby and then go fundraise. Um, Because there was perception that there might be bias towards me um, in the investor community if I were like eight months pregnant and fundraising, especially with the first child. I think there is for some reason with the first child there's a lot of fear that um, as a new mom you might totally freak out and like ditch the company and just wanna be with the baby all the time or have um, postpartum or a a number of factors. um, I obviously thought it was crazy, but I couldn't really argue. and, and so I did that. But what that meant was um, there was not really a maternity leave. Um, I had the baby, I got like a month or so of rest, and then like was right up and at it um, fundraising for our Series B round of the company. Um, so yeah, it's it's very stressful and and uh, it's you know, it's difficult to to raise a child. I actually think that for founders and CEOs who have children, you know, it's, um, it's hard to take maternity leave, and it's partially because you don't want to. Like, you want to stay connected in some way to the business, even if that's not working hundred percent of the time, you want to at least scan your email and make sure nothing's on fire. So, um, I feel like the, the rules should sort of shift in some ways for what's expected of, of um, working moms who are CEOs and founders. Um, and, but everyone should have their own choice, of course. Like, you should be able to
0: do what you want to do. How do you tell us about your situation? Because
1: my situation is
0: great. (laughs) (laughs) Let let me rephrase. No, no, it's fine.
1: So um, I got pregnant with twins, my first round. Magical surprise. Um, And yeah, no, I think I and everybody was like, what the hell is going to happen to her? And it was really hard. So I actually took three months maternity leave. I mean, I couldn't not take maternity leave that long. I was like physically feeding a human 20 hours a day. Two <laughs> humans. Two humans for 20 hours a day. So like a human was like physically attached to my body for that long. So I had to take maternity leave. Um and it was really great. It was the right time for the business. It gave me a lot of clarity. Um I'm pregnant with my third oh, surprise. Congratulations. Um and feels awesome because it's one. <laughs> so <laughs> it's gonna be super easy, total layup. Um but look, I mean, I don't I honestly people ask all the time, like how do you do it? How do you do it? And New York is like built for it um, to ha- to make this happen. You know, I think certain people are built for it. I find myself to be like a far superior leader as a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, it is extremely challenging those initial months to get like oriented, situated. Yes, sleep. First of all, you're not sleeping anyways, and that was something people kept scaring me about. Like sleep, sleep, and I'm like, what do you think we do as founders? Right. Like we literally don't sleep. Like we're in training <laughs> for sleep training an infant. Like mm-hmm. we know how to do this. Um, and you know the thing that i like didn't really understand but it is actually pretty logical was what it would do to my productivity to actually rest and rest is different from sleep so if you think about it before i had children the first 4 years of birchbox i was never not thinking about birchbox ever i mean in a soul cycle class in a social setting and frankly everyone was like pulling it out of me everyone's like oh birchbox birchbox right so i'm like giving it taking feedback like eating it up right so Every waking hour of my day was like conversation about our trucks. Now I have about two hours a day, and then like all of my weekends, to have like these moments that are just not about work. Mm-hmm. And so I rest my brain. I'm like more creative, very grateful for my experience. Like when I'm with my kids, and very grateful to have something for me. Um, and I, I like I said, I mean, I feel like it's a better experience with kids than I could have imagined. But trust me, like, those first three months, you're like, how the hell? Mm-hmm. I mean, the truth be told, like, the first like, six months are a really interesting time. But, um, but I, I try to tell women, like, try not to, don't make an assessment of how you're doing those first six months. Like, give yourself time to like, have this new reality, to adjust your schedule, to be, give yourself permission and be nice to yourself before you assess really what, how you're going to make changes in your
0: work life and in your career. Nadia, what are your thoughts? Uh, does this change how people think about their timeline when they expand their business, they launch their business?
2: So I do not have children, although I am now looking forward to it even more. Are
0: you pregnant?
2: Uh, <laughs> and I am not pregnant. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think that there's um, an opportunity in life to do many things. And I think that one of the most important things as, um, you know, female professionals is to stay focused on what you're focused on now and then begin to focus on the next step when you are in the next step. And for me, that means that I can stay focused on the business that we're building for however long. Uh, you know, my situation this is what it is. Um, and then there'll be a new kind of set of challenges and a new set of experiences. And you know, as long as you uh, live only in one moment at a time, I think the anxiety and the worry and the pre-planning that you really shouldn't be doing Um, before you need to, uh, becomes
0: easy to avoid. Thank you for your time, ladies. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email techevents at bloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.